Cajun. He lived by himself in the swamp. He hunted alligator for a living. He just knock him in the head with a stone. The Louisiana law gonna get you. All right, we are back. Let's talk about politics and science and how they get mixed up. One of our favorite topics, actually. We've been scoffing for some time at this notion that uh, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico just spontaneously got better. Well, certainly through the pile of articles, I pulled up the January 21st of this year, this week, which said the following. Bacteria quickly consumed most of the 200,000 tons of methane gas released during the BP oil spill last year in the Gulf of Mexico, according to a new study by university scientists. Petroleum-eating microbes also consumed most of the millions of gallons of oil, and scientists have found little trace of the spill in Gulf waters. Okay, that was reported, I guess, with a straight face. We read that to you in January and openly mocked it. Also sorting through the pile, I see an article from McClatchy Newspapers. And by the way, Sacramento Bee is part of the McClatchy chain, and uh, as newspapers go in America, they have been one of the best which is one reason why we find ourselves frequently uh, quoting from it. I wish we would maybe quote more from the Davis Enterprise and other local papers from Woodland and Vacaville and such. We'll try and make that outreach in the weeks and months to come. But, you know, I think the bee deserves an attaboy, especially in the light of this discussion when I look at their headline from September 19th, which was, Lawsuit asks if science was manipulated in BP oil spill estimates. Gosh, could be. Remember when it first happened and they were saying, geez, we think there's 5,000 gallons a day coming out of this well, which later was revised upward slightly to something more like 100,000 gallons a day. But hey, who hasn't been off in an estimate by a factor of 20? (laughs) But no, the oil is still down there. The oil is still causing trouble. And uh, a couple weeks ago, the news surfaced that dead infant dolphins have been washing up on the Gulf Coast shore in Mississippi and Alabama at... More than 10 times the normal rate. At least 26 baby dolphins were found along the shoreline in the first, since the first of the year. And all were either stillborn or died shortly after birth. The normal average is one or two per month. This is the first dolphin birthing period since the Deepwater Horizon oil spill last spring. The Week reported this by saying, Scientists suspect the deaths may be related to the spill. Hmm... That is a possibility. For keeping track, deaths among adult dolphins also spiked from 30 in 2009 to 89 last year. Also turning up dead throughout the area, pyrosomes. We talked about that as well. These are large gelatinous masses of tunicates, better known to you as sea squirts from tidal ponds. Apparently, free-living varieties of this uh, float in the world's oceans. Uh, They're a favorite food of turtles, which doesn't bode well for the turtle population in the Gulf. And I am at least glad for one thing. I learned some basic biology covering this story. Several years back, I found this large gelatinous mass attached to uh, lines on my boat down in the Sacramento Marina. I knew they weren't jellyfish, but I wasn't sure what they were. Well, I'm sure they were pyrosomes. I'm sorry to note I've never seen them in all their glory in the world's tropical oceans because reading on Wikipedia, it turns out they are brightly bioluminescent, flashing a pale blue-green light that can be seen for tens of meters. The name pyrosoma, in fact, comes from the Greek pyro for fire and soma for body. Sailors on the ocean are occasionally treated to calm seas containing many pyrosomes, all bioluminescing on a dark night. 
Hope I see that before I die. And I sure as hell hope they make a comeback down in the Gulf of Mexico. But um, one of the principles we operate this program on is that you need good data to start with. Decisions, political or otherwise, based on, fa- based on falsehoods are uh, uh, not always the best. So included among those might be decisions based on the idea that, uh, well, that, that oil down in the Gulf pff, vanished. Darn, it was there a minute ago, but thank goodness it's all gone now. I guess it shows there's no reason we have to reform the methods being used to deep drill a mile down on the ocean floor. Or, uh, you know, beef up some of our safety precautions because, hell, if there's a leak, the oil just goes away. All right, in part two, involving uh, water, science, and politics. In this case, fresh water, we would uh, refer you to the excellent op-ed piece, Last week's Sunday B by Bert Wilson. We talked to Bert about uh, the peripheral canal machinations currently going on in Sacramento a couple months ago. We need to bring him back. We highly recommend you read his piece, which notes that the state water plan is a done deal long before the vote that's coming up in 2012. Bert notes that millions of tax dollars are already being spent before the public has okayed the program. To excerpt the article, said Burt, in 2009, the legislature passed the Delta Reform Act, SBX 71, as one of several bills constituting the state water plan. It creates the Delta Stewardship Council as a legally constituted body to oversee the Delta plan, a legally enforceable part of the state water code. Since the council began its work in February of last year, millions of dollars have been spent on planning and even implementing several basic structures necessary to the Delta plan. Notes, Bert, as you're reading this, water agency workers are hacking away at the Delta landscape as if a vote had been taken and the water bill passed. Soil tests have been conducted. More than $30 million is being appropriated to study the, quote, science, unquote, of the Delta. I guess that kind of reminds me of the Japanese whale harvest that's done for study of the whales. I guess studying how to turn them into whale burgers counts. But, what's Mr. Wilson? The huge Freeport intake on the Sacramento River, built ostensibly to settle an old obscure water rights issue, can be easily envisioned to participate with five more planned intakes in pumping more Delta water south. Did you vote on any of this? No. Where'd all this money come from for this planning? When Schwarzenegger axed the water plan bill, there was already $12 billion in unspent funds, surprise, languishing in the water agency's coffers. That's your tax money appropriated by the legislature. And now it's being spent on facilities and planning that will mesh with the construction of a future, quote, conveyance system, unquote, to complete the water plan. Bird asks, thus, when it comes time to vote on the water bill in 2012, what will we be voting on? A fait accompli. He notes one can envision three scenarios converging on the coming water plan vote in November 2012. One, the voters will approve the conveyance systems and they will be built. Two, the water system will be defeated and the conveyance systems will still be built. Three, the water bill will once again be stricken from the ballot for one reason or another and the conveyance systems will still be built. Asks Bert, how can this happen? The Delta Stewardship Council in the release of its recent first draft of the Delta Plan, reminds us it is charged with, quote, the implementation, unquote, of the co-equal goals and objectives, in quotes, of the Delta, one of which is to, quote, 
improve the water conveyance system and expand statewide water storage, unquote. Notes this just happens to be the same wording that is part of the state water code. Thus, in reality, there doesn't need to be a vote on the water bill, the conveyance systems, or the cost. The legal path has already been greased, and the money, when push comes to shove, can simply be appropriated by the legislature. We need to have Bert back on to talk about this, because something needs to be done. In spite of this rather pessimistic uh, op-ed piece, I hope that something can be done. Writing about other related water issues in a letter to the Sacramento Bee was Felix E. Smith, who said, Regarding the Reckless House GOP reopening water wounds editorial, the editorial's right on target. Could also be titled, Water Nazis are up to their old antics. With the support of Westland's Water District, Representatives Devin Nunez and Tom McClintock want to legitimize the stealing of more Northern California water for the big ag corporations in the San Joaquin Valley. Writing a letter to the Sacramento News and Review about an article they had on the same topic, James D. Taylor wrote, Concerning the article on U.S. Representative McClintock and the fractures in the GOP district's machine, I have loved to see an expose of Mr. McClintock's proposal to revisit the twice-dead Auburn Dam construction. If one follows the money trail behind his support of this effort, it would be interesting to see which branch of deep-pocketed developer types were actually pushing for it and providing generous campaign contributions to boot. Twice, John Doolittle tried to do the bidding of the same cadre, and twice it went down in flames and was pronounced dead. Now his successor is attempting to raise this corpse from the dead at huge expense to the general public. Meanwhile, up in North Natomas, an area that was developed in a huge floodplain, once someone declared that the levees could withstand a 200-year flood, of course that's based on... uh, Data from the last 200 years, not for what we expect to happen in the next 200 years in the wake of global warming. Article in the Sacramento Bee by Michael Doyle notes that uh, Representative Doris Matsui is currently trying to authorize federal funding for construction of better levees to seal off the Natomas Basin. <laughs> I love the fact they built in a basin. Yeah, they're trying to get the feds to kick in $922 million of a $1.3 billion project to strengthen the levees so that Sacramento does not go the way of New Orleans. For listeners in other states and other countries, we'd point out that California, at least California development, is all about water and where it goes. Southern California, that location of such wonderful weather and Hollywood and LA and all that, has enough water to support 1 million people. It's currently got about 21 or 22 million people, which means they got to suck a lot of water from other places to keep the ball game going. I know we get some testy responses from listeners living in Southern California when we, t- when we talk about this, but um, sorry, guys. Although we in Northern California do begrudge sending you all that water, sending you even more so you can develop more real estate in the desert just, just ain't going to fly. We'll continue to talk about this and the fact that so much water going in the San Joaquin Valley winds up doing things like pumping oil out of the ground and subsidizing farmers like Chevron, which is, I believe, California's largest, quote, farmer, unquote. But that's about all we'll say today. All right, another article where science and technology and politics get mixed up. Terrifying article in Scientific American magazine about something we predicted on this program. Something worrisome that is now apparently coming to pass. Writing in the magazine, Mara Grunbaum 
notes that the age-old war between farmers and weeds is escalating. Crop-strangling plants are rapidly becoming immune to the most widely used agricultural herbicide, glyphosate, commonly known as Roundup. An estimated 10 million of the 175 million acres of U.S. farmland growing corn, cotton, and soybeans are now infested with weeds that are, that are invulnerable to the chemical. Herbicide resistance could cost nearly a billion dollars a year, and notes the article may force farmers to re-examine older practices that modern chemicals were supposed to replace. As we've noted on this program repeatedly in the past, in the 1990s when agrotech giant Monsanto introduced genetically modified crops that can withstand glyphosate, many farmers turned to Roundup as their sole herbicide. Initially, that made farming simpler and more efficient. But reliance on a simple substance naturally breeds resistance since the few weeds that survive pass their hardiness on to the next generation. This is very basic biology and was all along entirely predictable. Notes the article, at least 12 U.S. weed species no longer respond to Roundup. And since some seeds are windborne, resistance moves easily from one farm to another. Monsanto and other agricultural chemical companies plan to introduce crops that can withstand other herbicides, which should encourage farmers to add more variety to their treatment regimens. Does anyone get that the same thing is going to happen? Well, it'll certainly happen if they take the simple approach and try something other than Roundup, because resistance will arise using this simple-minded technique. But uh, weed scientist Michael Owen at Iowa State University notes that uh, the weed population quickly shifts from one that is sensitive to the herbicide to one that is largely resistant. Working with scientists from five other states, Owen's comparing different weed control practices on about 150 fields through the South and Midwest. Preliminary results from the five-year study, which is funded by Monsanto, suggest that new strategies, such as combining multiple chemicals, and applying herbicides both before and after weeds emerge can improve crop yields compared with the typical glyphosate-heavy approach. So, to review, farmers in America were sold a bill of goods that their life could be made much simpler by this marvelous product Monsanto had to offer. They left out the part that it's a temporary fix. They also left out the part that once you breed all these uh, resistant uh, uh, weeds and they become dominant, well, you're going to have a hell of a time correcting that, at least without going, to the, going back to the previous methods of using lots of different herbicides. Concludes the article, a larger chemical arsenal alone will not solve the problem, but in combination with traditional weed management, I love that, with traditional weed management, such as tilling and crop rotation, it should make it harder for unwanted plants to evolve resistance, which I kind of interpret as we're back to square one, aren't we? And let's wrap up this segment by talking about something we did a few weeks back, uh, the fact that your pet may be something of a health threat. Article by Cynthia Hubert in the Sacramento Bee. Uh, <laughs> while back on this same topic, I couldn't put my hands on when we discussed it last time, but it has reemerged, like the quote from it. They give you joy. They give you loyalty. They give you sloppy kisses. But before you allow Fido or Fluffy to climb into bed with you, as an increasing number of Americans are doing, know that they can give you something else. Zoonoses. A UC Davis veterinary professor has penned an article for a scientific journal showing that people who allow their pets to lick them, give them, quote, kisses, unquote, or sleep with them, are at risk for a variety of diseases. Duh! 
Ladies and gentlemen, if a dog licks your face, wash off. Or better yet, have him lick your hand, noted Cynthia Hubert. According to a recent survey by the American Pet Products Association, nearly half of pet dogs and 62% of cats sleep with their human companions. Article notes that in the U.S., the most common parasitic zoonoses associated with dogs are caused by hookworms and roundworms, which in humans can cause gastrointestinal symptoms, also anemia, and other conditions. Pasturella multicida, an infection commonly caused by pet licks, can cause everything from mild respiratory symptoms to serious conditions including endocarditis. If a dog bites you and you get infection in the wound, that's the usual culprit, but uh, apparently licks can do it too. Of course, the article goes on to cite a couple of uh, Sacramentans who, uh, who dote on their pets and live in East Sacramento and they share their bed every night with Austin, a 60-pound Australian shepherd, and a portly tabby, Sammy. Apparently their other pooch, Reba, has no interest in joining them, which I guess makes Rita the smartest one of the bunch. The article notes that the guy in this couple had adamantly opposed the sleeping arrangements and said, to me it just seemed like a sanitary thing. Animals in the bed? Would you start smelling like an animal? Um, yes. But the article notes he changed his tune. Austin, the dog, is his running partner after all and helps everyone keep warm on cold winter nights, he reasoned. Now I call him up on the bed. And I gotta say, if you're an Inuit living up in the Point Barrel area and you need to have dogs in your home to help with the heating, well, I think that's understandable. We're talking here about the Mediterranean climate of East Sacramento. How cold does it get at night? But thank God the article does note that this person and his spouse are less keen on engaging in full-on smooches with their pets. Said the woman, I'll allow a little kiss on the face, but she knows where to draw the line. The Sacramento SPCA, where this woman works, holds an annual fundraiser that features a, quote, kissing contest, unquote, involving animals and their owners. And it's noted in the article, some participants go overboard in the name of competition. She noted, sometimes it's truly embarrassing. It's really hard to watch. Frankly, I find it really hard to contemplate. Bruno Chamel, the UC Davis veterinary professor, who the article quotes, <laughs> says, Those who do choose to share bed and lip space with animals can avoid disease transmission by hand washing, toothbrushing, regular veterinary care, and good overall hygiene. He added, currently, I'm a pet lover, but my pets have never been in my bed. And as for doggy and kitty licks and kisses, you could do it, but I'm not sure your husband will want to kiss you after that. Well, yeah. Anyway, on that note... Let's take a short break. We'll have we have more fun coming up in segment three. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. <laughs> 